Keep your distance, though, Chewie. But don't look like you're trying to keep your distance. I don't know. Fly casual. I have a bad feeling about this. This is The 11 Days of Star Wars. Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by spending two weeks at Christmas lovingly analyzing all the highs and lows of our favorite franchises. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is my co-host, Sam. Returning today, get it, get it, (laughs) is Elise, who is now coming to help us round out the original trilogy by talking about episode six, Return of the Jedi. You you could even say that she's come back for revenge. Uh, but Jedi don't do revenge, Sam. God. I was going to make a joke that I didn't do my homework because I couldn't find the film Revenge of the <laughs> oh, Jedi. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, I guess we're out. that's it. That's it. So, I mean, since we talked to you before, our first segment seems a little bit repetitive, but I was going to ask you for a Latka Fest update, since I know that that's coming up. And also, when is the first day of Hanukkah this year? Hanukkah is Sunday night. The Is that the 18th? I don't have a calendar in front of me. It Sunday starts night, this so Sunday night. So it will already have... St- I think it'll already, maybe already, I don't know what date this episode is airing. This episode is airing but on it, Sunday, yeah, so it's it'll already be happened. tonight. Yeah. yeah. Wait. What? Oh. Okay, so Hanukkah is tonight. No, and no, it'll be Monday. Well, so Hanukkah, if no, I went, Hanukkah is tonight. It's just not the first night. Yeah, Hanukkah starts tonight. No, Sunday okay. night is the Monday first night. Monday is when this episode is going right. to air. Yes. Okay. Because Empire is... That's the first day of Hanukkah. Fantastic. Now that we've got that settled. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We love our starts at (laughs) holidays. Uh, Well, I I saw a meme (laughs) one time and I didn't know how accurate it was, but I feel like maybe we just proved that it was. That if you ask any any Jewish person at any given time when Hanukkah starts, it's about 50% success rate. (laughs) I, I will just say that my mom and I had the same conversation that I just had with you both. So it's not just, it's all of us. I will update that Latka Fest was this past Saturday. And because I haven't been feeling so great this week, I don't know if I went or not, but to be determined. Have you watched any holiday movies lately or are you looking forward to watching any holidays movies? Yes. I did my annual watch of The Family Stone this week, or since I've spoken to you last. I think I watched it after I spoke to you last. Now I'm second guessing myself. But I watched that this week. Because I remember the conversation about it and thinking, well, we'll get to Christmas movies eventually. Oh, when we, yes, when yes, we're yes. Not yes. Editing and oh, watching yes. Star Wars. But I have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. But, like, I feel stupid because I don't know if I said this on the podcast before, but it just occurred to me that the Family Stone as a title of a film has two meanings when I previously only thought it had Mm -hmm. one meaning. I just know it's the family's last name, but the whole movie is about 
I get his name confused, but the character Everett going to his parents' house to get the family right. stone to propose. Yeah. Didn't didn't occur oh, to me. Before. I was also thinking the pun, the family's tone. Like really? the tone of the gathering. You were thinking that. Yeah, I was. Okay. Jeremy Irons. You went Jeremy's genuine okay. Alec Guinness. Okay, hold on. Genuine class. <laughs> okay, hold on. They're gonna have like a meme where like the top one is like it's the family's name, and then the middle one's gonna be like Oh, it's about the ring, and then the the galaxy brain one is going to be like the family. I, I would like to tone. point out that I have never seen this film, so I know nothing about it. I yeah, I <laughs> thought oh, I knew that. I, so I thought maybe you funny. were going to go really far out there and say the family stone, like Sly in the Family Stone, like everyday people, because this family is like an everyday family. Uh, it could be your love family. That song. Because we're all dysfunctional. I thought you were going to say because we're all family. My family. <laughs> I would say that my family is a little bit less asshole than their family, um, but it's, yeah, they're very. It's really nice, as as Rayanne famously said. Don't don't listen to her. She's the product of a two parent household. <laughs> I I yes. often wonder. Yeah. Yeah, I say everybody's family's dysfunctional. That's just because I assume everybody's family's as dysfunctional as mine. And guess what? They're not. It's weird. I don't want to give this idea that my family is perfect. We have a lot of communication Well, issues. nobody's family is perfect. Um, I think that Tolstoy, when he said all fa- happy families are the same and all unhappy families are unhappy in different ways, I think he was generalizing when it came to happy families. <laughs> but Right. No, uh, of course. But I just, last time when we were chatting or recently, I... Sam commented on one of the other episodes that I must have had a happy childhood. <laughs> I don't remember. And I was like, I did, but also we definitely I mean, had to our be problems. Fair, I also. have, uh, on the topic of family, I have also recently connected you to the mob. So, I mean, that's another yes, family that's right true. there. We have just determined that Elise has all the signs I, we, we, of being we extremely res- functional family, too. Yes. The, that, that particular family. I've personally, um, I don't know if it ever died, so like this is not factually accurate, but I've personally resurrected Murder Inc. Like we're we're doing it, folks. <laughs> I you told you it, it was revenge, Tessa. I told you. You heard it here first. Well, speaking of families, <laughs> happy or not, we've been talking about different elements of the Skywalker family since the beginning of this series. This is really the movie that pulls all of these things together. Yes, um, it and. You know, what's interesting is is that as we discovered yesterday with Melissa and then previously with Lozzie, it's really interesting to talk about the original trilogy from the perspective of, like, these were the first three Star Wars movies, right? Like, these are the ones that introduced us to these characters, that introduced us to this world. But also, because of the prequels and because we're watching them chronologically, you can also look at them through this lens of being an extension of things that we've talked about before. So it's kind of interesting the different ways, whether Lucas planned it or not, to look at it as a text on its own, but also as part of a larger text. But before we get into that, is this movie good? Elise, I'm going to let you take this first. Is Return of the Jedi good? Initial impressions. Yes. It is, and when I was a child, it was actually my favorite Star Wars. There are so many things I love in this film still. 
the Han rescue. We get more Emperor Palpatine. Luke is wearing all black, and it really is great. He's a goth kid now. We get the Rancor and his keeper. <laughs> yeah, he really is. We got my favorite, my favorite creature, the Rancor, and his keeper that's very Isn't sad the saddest when he dies. thing in star wars like when he starts crying like just full-on bawling i love the ewoks or as sam calls them the murder bears i also had some unexpected nostalgia watching this film i watched the despecialized versions which i believe yes. you guys watched also and there was a lot and i grew up with the vhs tape so like while it wasn't exactly what was in the theater it was a lot different from the special editions And I was, like, buzzing the whole time I was watching all three of these, because I watched the whole trilogy, and just felt very, like I was coming home or something. I don't know. I don't mean to be, like, snooty about the special editions, because I really do think they're fine and don't, they don't bother me that much compared to some other folks. But I just felt so excited to be watching the despecialized versions. Like, I was almost, like, crying the whole time from just being happy. So, and also, I just say, like, Han Solo is my favorite character in all of Star Wars, and he's just so charming, and he has great banter, and it just continues in this film. I feel like he's allowed to be a lot more lighthearted in this film than he has been in the two previous ones. Like, there's a lot more Han, like, gags in this film. Sam, is Return of the Jedi good? Well, I'll tell you, we watched Empire Dreams, which we'll talk about in a little while. And, you know, they play clips from the film since it's an officially licensed documentary. And uh, at the very end, they don't spend a lot of time on Return of the Jedi, but at the very end, they started playing underneath the narration and the interviews. They started playing the final song from Return of the Jedi. And if you know what year Empire of Dreams was made, I heard a song. I was like, that's not that that song is nothing to me. I don't know what song that is. I really didn't for a moment. I was like, oh, it's that awful new song at the end of Return of the Jedi. I These these films are great. Return of the Jedi is great. And it's only great if it's this version. I've seen the new version of Return of the Jedi once. So I almost didn't know what that musical cue was. because, uh, But I knew it was wrong because I'm so familiar with the other ones. That's very different from my experience because while I grew up watching this older version of it, I probably have rewatched the newer version more times than I've seen the older one. And while I will concede on this and we can talk about Yub Nub later, it's great. Um, I don't hate the new song. So I, d- I just think both put both songs in, make it a musical. <laughs> Play that's the last nice. scene that's twice. My feelings on Different it. versions. Different versions of the last scene. Let's go. <laughs> well, they add new visuals too for that. So I feel yeah, like they, they can, can figure make it, it work. out. I find myself for once being the odd person out in terms of liking this film. And I don't dislike it. I want to make that very clear. But every time I watch it, I feel like it goes down like a like a notch for me. And again, I enjoy it. It's definitely in the upper half of my my Star Wars rankings, which I am slowly but surely solidifying. I will have an official ranking by the time we finish this this series. But to me, this movie is not greater than the sum of its parts. I think there are some really good parts in this movie. And it's not that I dislike it for the reasons that most people who dislike it dislike it. I love the Ewoks. I think they're great. 
I think the problem for me is it just doesn't like live up to how good Empire was. And so like watching it right after Empire, I'm just really struck with the ways in which it feels like it's George Lucas pumping the brakes on some of those emotional storytelling moments that we really get in Empire and sort of being like, oh, well, no, we're back to leaning more into it being a serial again, more into it being like an action adventure, which again, not bad. The original Star Wars is great. But to me, it was like, I didn't really know what Han was doing the entire time there. He isn't given a whole lot to do. Um, I don't like the the whole thing where they the whole sequence where they meet the Ewoks because of the speeder chase. It's just not really my thing. Um, and it does feel because the Death Star is in it again, a little bit like a rehash to me. And I'm sort of I, I almost kind of wish that this was a different mission that they were trying to do. Like it just to me, it just felt like, oh, we're repeating this again. And I know why Lucas did it. It's because he believes in like the hero's journey and the idea of cycles and returning and that kind of thing. It just, to me, it doesn't work necessarily in film as well as I think I thought it did when I was younger, but I love the Jabba's palace sequence. I love the Ewoks fighting at the end. And of course the scene in the throne room is one of the best scenes in star Wars. So like there are like these really wonderful parts to this movie. Just to me, it doesn't, add up to something that's as good as Empire or or Star Wars. Um, so that's kind of my initial opinion, I guess. So I hate to be the voice of someone who's just like, eh, this movie doesn't do very much for me, but, but I do like a lot of it. So I really enjoyed watching it. But let's go ahead and get into, but really, is it good? The deep dive topics, because I think that's where the three of us excel when we're, when we're together is to like looking at the deep dive of things. So let's look at that first act, uh, which is an act that finds Luke returning to Tatooine. I love that in the crawl, it actually says like the very first sentence, Luke returning to Tatooine, which feels a bit like an inversion of the hero's journey because you're supposed, the hero is supposed to return home at the end of the story. But here we find Luke returning home at the beginning of the end of the story, right? He, the story is not finished, but he's returned home and he's a different person what do we think about this whole we have to rescue Han and everybody seems to either have their own mission or they're working together on a mission to get Han out? What do we think about this, Sam? Uh, first, there's there's really something to say about home since you brought it up that Luke is going to his home and he doesn't want to be there. Uh, he he tells he tells Han at one point, I was born here, you know which he wasn't, to which Han replies, you're going to die here, you know. And it's, as you said, it's kind of an inversion because he hates the fact that he has to come here, which, you know, considering you're the only one who has a home, if you forget the holiday special for a second, (laughs) right? Because uh, Han is a wanderer. He has no home being an orphan street kid, although we don't know that right now. As but, Harrison Ford said, he has no mama. He has no papa. Yeah. But we do know that Leia had her planet blowed up. And we know that Chewbacca's planet is under Imperial occupation. So the the homecoming thing can't really be overstated. Although the the move here, and I asked you when we were watching, was what happened between films? 
why is Luke a Jedi? Did he discover a holocron? Has he been hanging out with, did he meet Ahsoka between these two movies? Like, what has happened? We don't know. Doesn't matter, really, I guess, except it does because I want to know. But the point is, the first time we see Luke on Tatooine again, he is the man in black. He is no yeah. longer the farm boy. And so the the homecoming is supposed to have a little bit of extra meaning to it because we see him as a self-styled Jedi Knight. And we see him also as the mastermind of this plan that involves slowly planting his squad inside Jabba's palace in a way that Boba Fett won't catch on. Yeah. Which, I mean, I don't know that Boba Fett's the smartest person in the room, so whatever. I mean, to be fair, is there a smartest <laughs> person in that room? R2. I mean, on Jabba's side. <laughs> oh. Hmm. It's food for thought. Well, if I go back to Tales from Jabba's Palace by Kevin J. or edited by <laughs> Kevin J. Anderson, they all have rich inner lives. I will tell you that. Okay. I'm not sure I want to know the rich inner lives it's, of some no, of those No, it's characters. actually really good. You get to read a chapter from the Rancor's Keeper's point of view, the Gamorrean Guards. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's good stuff. Elise, what did you think about Luke's return home and the beginning of this plan to get Han out? I liked that we were not in on the plan. That yeah. That one. I liked that they just started where the plan already was happening. And, like, we don't really know until the middle of the that whole act really that everything was was calculated and done on purpose and i think that really shows how luke has grown over the um the last however many years and i agree with sam i also would really much like to know what he was doing during that time i assume he went and hung out with yoda a little bit more but there's probably other things he did as well i also very much and even though it doesn't play out as, like, a montage, like, in, say, the movie, like, Armageddon or something like that, I love the, like, let's get the gang back together plots. That's just a trope that really works for me, especially in a trilogy or even a sequel type of thing where, you know, people might get separated at the end of the one film and you have to get them back together. Like, I just, it feels like coming home for everyone, even if... That's not everyone's physical home. I just think also Jabba's Palace has, like, amazing bad baddies and threats that we don't see in other in the other movies. Like, the Sarlacc Pit is so ridiculous. <laughs> I, I love it so much. Um, I very much love Salacious Crumb. Um, like, he's just ridiculous <laughs> giggling it seems like more of a hive of scum and villainy than the cantina was like it's like we're gonna take this and we're gonna dial oh, it up totally and like i wonder how far it is from that like is it on the other side of the planet like i feel like i mean we we go to tattooing a lot in all of the star wars things but i still don't know like the map of the whole planet <laughs> i do think well, i'm trying to remember what i meant by <laughs> writing these notes <laughs> Okay, so because Han, like, you know, Han gets rescued, but he can't, he can't see, it kind of feels, Han's figuring out the plans as we're figuring out the plans, and I really enjoyed that parallel. Yeah, but I love that he trusts Luke and Leia, like, and 
Chewie and all of them because he's like totally how are we doing and Luke's like oh about as usual he's like that bad huh like it, it's very jokey and very funny you know at the yeah. same time but there's yeah. a camaraderie between them um that is really wonderful I never really cared or got the big deal about Boba Fett we obviously see him in the in the scene I just never said oh that's a guy I want to know more about Sam has similar feelings about Boba Fett. It's fine. Boba Fett's a punk. (laughs) (laughs) And why? Because he has really lousy spatial awareness for the biggest, baddest bounty hunter in the galaxy. He literally can't. One big melee and he's down in the pit. I think it's really funny that we found out in ancillary... Star Wars, later Star Wars material that his father is given the Mandalorian armor and he inherits it from his father. But real Mandalorians do not consider him a Mandalorian, right? He's a clone. And it is very funny to me, considering the fact that the Mandalorians used to fight Jedi, that eventually, like, it's like one good lightsaber, you know, slash. And then when he gets up, he gets hit in the back of the head by Han. Like, it is very interesting to me, that, like, contrast. Right, because it's not like the that part of the lore was really right. created yet. So there, it's it, it doesn't track 100%. It's really funny, though. I do think, and I don't know, have... Did you guys watch yes, Book of Boba Fett? Like, I thought the best parts of that were about the Mandalorian and Grogu. Like, I didn't... The... the I mean, it was. I will say that I appreciate them showing us a little bit more about the Tusken Raiders. Like, that was a little bit interesting for me. But in general, I just don't need to know anything more about Boba Fett. That's who I want to know more about. I do think that, that Jabba's... And I like that they fall asleep in, like, a cuddle pile. Like, everybody just, like, falls asleep wherever they fall, I guess, on the floor. Like, imagine, like, the court of, like, the the queen or something, and then all of her subjects just, like take a nap on this chair like everyone just sleeps at the same time but like doesn't go home they just like hang out in this palace room together and just like have like a sleep all together it's very of course i can't go past this scene without asking you about princess leia's outfit which is of course iconic for good and bad reasons i suppose sam actually managed (laughs) to convince me this time watching it that like, because when I was a kid, I thought that like Leia was doing her own thing and she got captured and then Luke had to like come get her out of it. But watching it again, Sam pointed out to me that this is a plan that all of them are in on. Like the whole point was that she was supposed to get Han out of the carbonite and then get ca- probably get captured in the process so they could be like embedded. Yeah. Yeah. Or expect so to be. What do we think about her role in this first act? So I think in contrast to the conversation that we had during Attack of the Clones where, and I believe you talked about this also on the Revenge of the Sith episode, it's hard not to compare Padme and Leia. That is her, you know, Padme is her mother and Padme's story gets pushed very much to the side. And it's really exciting for me to see Leia be a badass and she gets to kill Jabba and I think that's freaking awesome. And the fact that she was so involved in the plan, like she was allowed to risk her life for her love. Like no one tried to, I assume no one tried to stop her because they all love Han and they all wanted to rescue him together. 
The part I have an issue with, and while, don't get me wrong, Slave Girl Leia is very hot. I'm, I'm, I won't deny that. At, and I've always felt it is extremely male gazy as like a costume, but watching the Empire of Dreams and seeing how Carrie was talking about how she wasn't even that excited about being able to be a badass because she was worrying about what exercises she needed to do to wear that outfit. That upsets me. Sam, do you want to also say the thing that you pointed out to me as far as the way she ingratiates herself into Jabba's court? The thing about it is, is Leia's kind of a blank slate for us. We don't really know much about her other than she's a princess. But I think what's what's interesting, and the other thing that we didn't talk about is how R2 has Luke's lightsaber. Yes. Like, this was always the plan. But I think I think plan A... Yeah. <laughs> I do think Leia was trying to get him out. That was plan A. Mm-hmm. If plan A had worked, they would have had to rescue everybody else, though. So that's weird. But, you know, part of the plan was to be there. And But what you're referring to is when she comes in as the bounty hunter, whose name I have forgotten. She has the thermal detonator, which is which is a fun, a fun bit, right? And... Ron Howard, or it that was obviously Lord Miller. The, they do a call forward to that in Solo with uh, the rock. And the, you just made the sound. You, that's a rock and you just made a sound yeah. with your mouth. Yeah. But I, so I really want to see a lot more of Leia in the resistance. Sorry, good Lord. I don't want to see anything of Leia in the resistance. I'd like, I already have. I've seen too much. I'd like to see Leia as part of the rebellion. And I would also like to see more of her than we saw. I mean, I mean, it was great in Obi-Wan. I really appreciated actually getting to see Leia as a kid. We've spent so much time with Luke in Anakin. Could we not maybe see her as well? That was one of my favorite bits about that show was being with Leia. Without the knowledge of Solo, it's kind of funny to think that, that Han taught her some things. And with the benefit of Solo, we know he taught her that one. Yeah, except for... Except she ups the ante by having a real thermal detonator. She has the real thermal detonator, yeah. Because Han's not real. She's going all in on it, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Both of you have mentioned that Luke also has a skill tree upgrade, right? He has a a power upgrade when he comes in here. What do we think about Luke post-learning his father as Darth Vader... And getting this power upgrade. Like, he's no longer the gee whiz farm boy that he was. We, we talked about this with Lozzie and compared him to Peter Parker in his, at the beginning of his journey. He's not that kid anymore, <laughs> right? Right. He's, he's the I wear black now and I wear one glove over my hand, you know, <laughs> type of person. I'm wondering if Yoda or Obi-Wan would tell him with great power comes <laughs> That great does seem like something Obi-Wan would say, honestly. That's what I thought, too, that it would be Obi-Wan. I think it's good, and I don't... Even though Sam and I both said that we would have loved to have seen what Luke was up to, it still feels believable without having seen that, for for me. It makes sense that he was off doing some training and can do more stuff. He <laughs> does that, like, front flip thing that's obviously a stunt person. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just... I I liked it. I think... 
it made me more confident in him in a way that didn't feel like he was too powerful. Like, I didn't think he was, like, coming in and being, like, Captain Marvel or something like that, where, like, you you bring Captain Marvel in at the very end because she's very powerful. He feels grown up. Like, he's not, like, a kid anymore. Sam, what do you think about Luke and his new fashion sense slash attitude? I mean, it, it's probably the one thing that bothers me about this movie. Really? Yeah. I mean, I have no idea how much time has passed. I I mean, when goes back to Dagobah, to me, it's clear that he's not been back since. So. Why, why is that clear to you? He says, I came back to finish my training. Well, he could have done more training and left and then come okay. back. Okay. Remember, Kasdan wrote these scripts, right? I understand. He wrote the script where he said, I'll be back. Yeah. And he wrote, co-wrote the script that said, I'm back. There's, this was written purposefully. To me, there's not room for open, there's not room for interpretation there. I could be wrong, but I doubt it. And so, I don't know how he got this far. I don't feel like a cheat code was entered so we could get the skill tree up. And, I mean, it's fine. I can overlook it, but... But I, don't I, you think do his wonder. attitude would be changed considering the events of oh, Empire? Yeah, like, I'm, he would be, like, a more... A really good student this time? Or, yeah. Or but mature who, person? But whose student was he? Yeah. I mean, and, and by the way, I mean, I will... This goes back to what I've said about Hamill does need to be recast, as do the other two, because... That is an interesting story that I think could be told on screen or not. How long do we think it has been between Empire and Jedi? Like, if we had to guess, do we think it's more than a year? I thought it was more than a year. But I also had Ken and that yeah. hung out with Yoda in the middle. I mean, the middle. honestly, if he learned from Ahsoka, that would be cool too. Well, while Sam is looking that up, the other question is, this is also... Lando's chance to redeem himself after selling Han out at the end of the last movie. What did we think about Lando's role in all of this, in this rescue? I think it changed from I owe you this to I realize that the Empire is a huge deal that needs to be taken care of. Like in Empire, you know, he's this businessman and he... You know, he sells his friends out, or not, he sells his friend out so that he doesn't get <laughs> is basically how I'm looking at it. That person would not have gone along with this. So he's obviously had some sort of um, change of heart as well, general. See, I really love him, but this almost bothers me more than Luke, is this idea of it feels like, it feels like the Lando that we see in the first act of this one is closer to the Lando in Cloud City than the Lando for the last two acts of Jedi. And obviously, like you said, this film is telling us that it's been a while. He's hung out with the Rebellion. He's hung out with Chewie, right, trying to find Han. He's hung out with Leia. He now believes in the cause. The thing is, is that it doesn't really give us a sense of like why he's invested. You know what I mean? Like, I think he is invested for all the reasons that you're saying. It's just that doesn't happen on screen. And so it does feel a bit like, oh, like, where's the smooth talking rogue? You know, like now he's kind of like a different person in some ways. I get it. And I th- I think part of that is the fact that 
But, and this is something you mentioned in your initial thoughts, or I, I feel like I'm probably going to paraphrase. This movie is a lot, I mean, while there's a lot of serious things that happen later with, you know, the face-off between Luke and Darth Vader and the Emperor, this movie is very like, okay, everyone's happy, everyone's good, everyone that's supposed to be good is good, and every it's everyone yeah. who's bad is bad. There's not as much gray as the previous two films. And I think part of that is that's it. This does feel, and I don't use this as like a value statement. This does feel more of like a kid's movie than the previous film. So that's just part of that there. So I do see that. It yeah, just doesn't I mean, and me. it, you can always watch this and not, it doesn't really register. It's just one of those things that when you start really looking at this film, I think what ends up bothering me is that some of the big character decisions of this film seem to be based more on this is where we need these characters to be at this particular moment rather than showing us how they got there. Which was an issue that we had with the prequels as well, where, where we had to have these like milestones that had to be passed. I mean, I think this is a common problem for the third of many trilogies that it's like, yeah. oh shit, I introduced all these really cool questions and cool ideas and now I have to resolve them all, right? And it's really, really hard to do that in a way that feels emotionally satisfying. Um, and like I said, this is not the worst version of that. I really like this film. But there are like, you can just see those little character moments where you're like, this doesn't, this doesn't feel right. You know, like this doesn't feel like the character I was watching before. This feels like someone else. And to a certain extent, I think Han also is a little like that too, because he does seem a lot less uh, conflicted. It's not the right word. Cause I'm not even sure he is that conflicted in empire. Um, I think it's more like he, he comes, a he comes across as a little bit goofier, I think in this movie, which is again, fine. It just like, it does feel a little bit like, well, he's just going to be with Leia the whole time and they're going to be doing the same thing. And so we're just going to have him be a little goofy to give Harrison Ford something to do. I feel like the switch for Han is kind of when the Ewoks are like, okay, you're all cool now. And like that interaction with Han and the Ewoks when everyone's friends, that's kind of where Han gets a little goofier for yeah. me. Like I did forward. love all of the, the stuff with him not being able to see in the first act. That was all very, very funny, I yeah. thought. So yeah, I appreciated that humor, I think, more than I appreciated the later humor. Do you have an answer to our question, Sam? I, I do. Uh, so as I... It it pretty much... the The child in me feels very vindicated because these are all things that I thought and assumed and I was like wait did I get this from anywhere and I didn't but they're <laughs> right anyway so Empire Strikes Back takes place in three ABY three years after the Battle of Yavin okay. so there's a three year gap between mm -hmm. Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back Return of the Jedi happens the next year okay so uh, and and the, the, the infallible resource that is Wikipedia Tells me there's a couple of interesting <laughs> fun facts about the year for ABY. First of all, the armor that Leia Organa gets comes from his name is Bausch. Okay. He's a Ubizian bounty hunter. Wikipedia, Wikipedia tells me the person who helped Leia get that armor is none other than underdeveloped character of the Star Wars millennia. Maz Kanata. Oh. 
Yeah. That's really interesting. I like oh, that. Interesting. That's fun. Uh, Wikipedia also states, having kept the promise he made to Master Yoda, Luke Skywalker returns to Dagobah to complete his Jedi training, but Yoda dies of old age. So that is his return. So he went from sniveling kid about to fall off of Bespin or onto Bespin, off of Cloud City onto Bespin. I guess is how that would work. Uh, he went from that to this in a year. That's weird. See, um, I think that's less and, weird than and, Lando thing. Do you think that is the titular return? I mean, maybe. <laughs> I mean, Luke is supposed to be the Jedi, right? In the title. Yeah, I don't think it's like Jedi it's like, as a concept it's as much as Unless Jedi you think it's Darth Vader Jedi. coming back to light side. I mean, that could be it too. Yeah, there That's are probably a couple too. ways you could you could interpret that. Yeah, I definitely didn't think it was yeah, his yeah. return to Dagobah. The return to Dagobah, the this. scene that only takes about 10 minutes. So let's talk about Dagobah. Okay, what do you like about the Dagobah scene? Uh, more important than Yoda to me is Luke getting to debrief everything with Obi-Wan because like, and I just love everything Sam has to say about wanting the Force ghosts to be more and wanting them to be like more involved. So I, I very much am interested in everything Force Ghost related, but like the fact that you can just have a conversation with like your advisor who has died is just amazing to me. And watching the movies in this order is very different than watching them in release order. And for me, the biggest thing was sitting through Star Wars and Obi-Wan withholding so much information from Luke. He doesn't tell him that Darth Vader is his father. He doesn't tell him that Leia is his sister. And, like, it's possible that they didn't, you know, that they wouldn't think about that yet, or at least the second part. But it's so interesting when he actually gets to talk with Obi-Wan about those things because it just, it almost made Star Wars funnier to me because he was, like, withholding that information. I just I just found that watching it in this order really elevated that scene for me because they finally had like the debrief that they really needed. I love how when Luke asks Yoda to confirm, is Darth Vader really my father, that Yoda tries to deflect the question by being like, oh, I have to go to sleep now. I'm going to take a nap. Which, I mean, like, come on, guys. <laughs> like, at die. some point, the jig is actually up, and you do have to actually talk about it. But apparently, if you're Jedi, you don't talk about your feelings. Well, I mean, of course, it's not withholding. It's George Lucas not knowing. So that certain point of view is a real, it's a real thing for George Lucas to get out of. It covers <laughs> a lot of sins. That kiss that, that you got from your sister wasn't bad from a certain point of view. <laughs> Okay. All right. Works there too, I guess. Well, I love how at the end of the movie, she's like, I guess I always knew. Like, some part of me always knew. And I'm like, but you still kissed him? Like, <laughs> yeah. And like, Luke, Luke had a similar feeling, like, where when Obi Wan was like, your sister, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, Leia? Like, all of a sudden, he was like, wait, what's the one woman yeah. <laughs> that I know in the world? It must be her. <laughs> Yoda's death scene is annoying. He is Yoda to the last. Up to and including, as you pointed out. Uh, mm, I'm 
going to go to sleep. I'll probably be dead when I wake up. So I will never tell you anything. Oh, okay, fine. I'll tell you. Uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi is a little bit more forthcoming, a little bit more willing to talk it through. Again, the two different ways to look at this scene. One, the way it's originally written and intended to be consumed, which is Obi-Wan coming clean, admitting responsibility, still trying to withhold about who Luke's twin is. But of course, Luke's able to guess and he's like, oh, you got me. You're going to want to not think about that because force people are, you know, known for being mind readers. So you're going to want to not think about that because uh, that's worked before ever. <laughs> and then the second thing is you can kind of look at it through our knowledge of everything that you and McGregor's Obi-Wan Kenobi has been through. And it carries a little bit more weight that he's able to honestly and openly thanks to his communing with Qui-Gon I'm I'm guessing say finally what he could not say four years earlier to Luke which is I I messed up I was a bad I thought I could do as good of a job as Yoda which to be fair he could because Yoda's also shit at this job but you know the the coming clean has a little bit more behind it if you see this as a larger narrative but boy that from a certain point of view is doing a lot of heavy lifting this is also the first time um, in the release order that we hear Anakin Skywalker's name mentioned it is mentioned by Obi-Wan and the idea that Vader killed Anakin Skywalker from a certain point of view which is something that we've seen picked up on in both Rebels in the confrontation between Vader and Ahsoka and in the confrontation in Obi-Wan Kenobi between Obi-Wan and Vader. Like even Vader believes that they, the, the personality of Darth Vader is, is, has killed Anakin in some meaningful way. Yes. I think it's interesting that both Obi-Wan and Yoda kind of doubled down on this idea that and that Luke can't handle things because this is something we talked about in empires. They both tend to infantilize Luke quite a bit in terms of like, Oh, you're a child or you're not ready or you can't handle this um, types of stuff. And they clearly still believe that he could not handle that information at the time that they told him a lie basically or withheld information because even Yoda is like, right. you know, it's unfortunate and, Luke says, unfortunate that I learned the truth. He's like, no, unfortunate that you went and you faced him too early and you had to learn that way. And that still feels a lot like it's blaming Luke for finding out something that he had no control over. I feel like that's very similar to how they treated Anakin as well. And kind of how they treat Padawans in general. <laughs> that you like have to wait until certain times for certain information. And I just, my brain does not work that way or comprehend withholding of any information from people unless they like has nothing to do with them. Right. And I, I also think it's interesting that if Vader hadn't told Luke, there doesn't seem to be any indication that either Yoda or Obi-Wan would have told him. Like it's kind of a like, oops, well, you know, now right. I guess we'll explain why we didn't tell you because, and I think honestly, it's a little disturbing if you go down that rabbit hole in the original series, because it's kind of like, 
they keep telling him that it's his destiny and like his job to kill Vader, right? To face him. That's the only way you'll become a Jedi. It's what you're here for. You're the only one who can do it, right? You're our only hope. But they were just going to let him commit patricide without telling him that that was his father. Like, it almost seems like they're saying the reason they withheld it from him is because he wasn't ready for it. But actually, it kind of sounds like they thought maybe he wouldn't do it if he thought that Vader was his father. I wouldn't blame Luke for not doing that if he found that, like, knowing that's his dad. The other thing I was going to say, though, about Luke is that we see him immediately beginning to push back, though, against Yoda and Obi-Wan. Like, he's willing to admit his flaws in the past films, like that he's been too rash or too reckless or whatever. But it is interesting that as soon as they're like, Mm -hmm. this is your destiny, this is what you need to do, he starts to push back on both of them. Like, he starts to say, like, I can't do that. Like, he's my father. How am I expected to kill my own father? You know, I can sense good in him. You know, like, I can sense the conflict. Like, he could have killed me, but he didn't, like, back on Cloud City. So it is interesting to see in some ways that Luke is starting to break out of that master Padawan mentor apprentice mold, right? Um, He is starting to question the things that Yoda and Obi-Wan are telling him, even if he's doing it in, like, the mildest way possible. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I feel like that does kind of parallel his father because he had this like mostly loving upbringing. I think he I think he just makes better decisions. Like he had someone who who taught him how to I assume his aunt and uncle helped him through his emotional like puberty or whatever. So, he had a much different upbringing than Anakin's. Well, and we in contrast Luke's chosen family of Han, Leia, Chewie, R2-D2, you know, 3PO, all of them, we can contrast that with the Jedi uh, temple, right? Which is the the environment that Anakin was raised in. We've talked before about how Anakin does have good bonds with people like Ahsoka and Obi-Wan to a certain extent, Mm -hmm. although Obi-Wan was not what Anakin needed him to be. And uh, Padme, although that relationship obviously has its issues too, but on the whole, the Jedi are not a family, right? The way that we see them in the prequels, they're very dysfunctional. They're not a good community. They don't support each other in the ways that they need to be supportive. Whereas Luke, even though he's tempted by the dark side in some situations, he has a family that supports him, right? Like Han and Leia would not hesitate to save him. And in fact, have not hesitated to save him at great expense to themselves on several occasions. So I think, I think you're right. I think there is a big difference in the way that Luke perceives himself and his relationship with others than Anakin did. Obviously, we already knew watching this in chronological order, and obviously because we've seen this series before, that Leia is Luke's sister. How do we feel? Did we learn any new information watching it this time? How do we feel about the way this is revealed and the way the relationship between these two characters changes based on that information? The thing that I saw this time was it is really fun when Han is like, you know, when he gets back, I'll leave. And you see the look on Leia's face like, oh, yeah, I guess I should have told you I was being super dramatic because I was in my feelings last night. Uh, <laughs> how am I supposed to? How are you supposed to know this if I don't tell you? I'm sorry, dude. He's my brother. Like in a look, c- 
communicates all of that and it's it's fun it's great fun I mean, to be fair, the night before, a lot of intense information was just dropped on her. So, like... (laughs) (laughs) I said she was in her feelings. Yeah. (laughs) I started seeing 9, 10 out of 10, I'm in my feelings. It's funny that Sam said that because I was drawn more to that scene than the scene where Luke and her were talking about it as well. And it's probably just because my obsession with Han Solo. But he's so willing to, like... this is, like, how I know that Han Solo has matured. Not that he was, like... And we don't know anything about his romantic life prior to now. You know, because Solo didn't exist. But it, he's like, I'll get out of the way. Like, that just felt so adult to me, um, even when I was a child. But, like, rewatching it now, I'm like, <laughs> you're great. <laughs> and, like, the faces that he makes at her when he realizes the truth. Like, I think he's happy for himself but he's also really happy for Luke and Leia like that they have each other and that I almost feel like he's like okay well Luke's my brother now too like it just felt very that's what I said too because you can see the progression on Harrison Ford's face from like shock and like not understanding to understanding and being happy for Leia to like galaxy brain oh wait that means i can marry into this family and like (laughs) like we can all be related to each (laughs) other so like yeah i think that that is a really fun moment what did we think about han and leia's relationship built upon what we started in empire as it goes into this film well we obviously get less bickering from them because they like know that they love each other now and i feel like it's not as much um Obviously, they weren't enemies, but, like, you know, frustrated people with each other to lovers. Nobody gets <laughs> called scruffy looking by the other person um, in this in this film. <laughs> exactly. So it did feel like they were on the same team the whole time, which was really nice. I definitely did not think that... I can't imagine even when I was a kid me thinking, like, that they would end up with anyone else. They have so much chemistry, and I love... I feel like she's been waiting for, what, a year? Like a whole year. She's been waiting for him to say I love you so she could say back to him the I know line. Like she's been keeping, she's been like, I'm not going to say it. He's going to have to say it first so I can say it back to him. (laughs) That's our thing now and I'm never going to let him forget it. (laughs) Yes. I didn't realize until to like, I know this was in the previous film, but like to go back to the Empire of Dreams, I didn't realize that he improv. Which that just line. makes it so wonderful because it's so perfect. Um, the I know. And I'm like, it's so perfect. And if like the line's not working, you see what works. And it was great. When you asked that question the first time, I was thrown and I was like, wait a minute, what? This film? Because I wasn't thinking about this film. I was thinking about what happens next. And, you know, it's it's interesting because this is true in the Legends universe and in the current canon universe. This film ends on a high. Mm-hmm. The Empire doesn't just go away. The Alliance doesn't just become a functional governor. I mean, for fuck's sake, Mon Mothma is elected in charge of the entire... Republic, Empire, whatever. So you know it's not going to go well. But, you know, thinking about the fact that there is this very highly charged romance, which depending on the point of view, it's either been slow burning for four years or they at least banged it out between here and there. Really either way. But the point is, 
the the romance of the last two episodes is you know pretty good it just you know it's like how well do you know each other how this is very much end of speed right like what's gonna happen and and in the i was just about to say the same thing (laughs) things go pretty decently in the legends universe the important thing here is they do not get married right away right i'd have to look to see how far return of the jedi and the courtship of princess leia are but they are not right next to each other in chronology and then of course in the current canon universe i mean their marriage is pretty disastrous they you know there's there's a kid going bad there is estrangement. Han runs out on her, you know, patricide eventually, uh, for real this time. But and but what that all does, and we'll talk more tomorrow. But it does put this film in a little bit more of a finer focus to say this is great right now. This is very, again, the word romantic, you know, full of passion and everything. But Han Solo is not immediately going to become a diplomat. Right. He's never going to be good at it. You know, Leia is going to have a much better adjustment to diplomat from freedom fighter than Han Solo is going to have because he's not going to snap back from freedom fighter to smuggler. Right. Except for the times when he does because that's what they need him to do as part of this new and flourishing government. But the point is... Leia has another life to step back into. He doesn't. He has this romance. And it will not stand up against everything that they have to continue to do after the Emperor is killed. And so it's kind of bittersweet is is what I think then, to answer your question. It is bittersweet because it's impossible not to think about what's going to come next. And like I said, that's a little bit more positive in the other universe Uh the, the Legends universe, but they do have some growing pains as a couple even there. Have either of you read Bloodline? No, I haven't. The Claudia Gray novel. It comes, it it's between this film and um, the next one. And I think it's like seven, I don't rem- I always forget how many years are between The Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens, like in universe. But the book is about seven or so years before The Force Awakens. So Ben is like off tra- off screen training with Luke and Leia is a senator and Han is basically smuggling again. Like it's very like what you said, Sam, like their lives didn't change that much. Like she goes into politics and he does what he needs to do to like keep busy. But they're very estranged even if they're still married i was trying so hard not to think about it to be completely honest with you i was just like oh he's like taking care of her when she gets shot and like yeah like i'm i'm like all in my romance feelings so the next thing that we see after the dagobah scene is the rebellion getting ready to launch this attack on the new death star because they've one death star bad two the emperor is going to be there. And so they want to like take this chance to attack him. And in order to do that, they have to send someone down to take out this shield, um, which is on Endor, this moon that the death star is orbiting around. 
So this is where we get something that we haven't seen in the other two original series films, which is we have three things going on at the same time that get cut back and forth between. So we have the people on the ground on Endor, which is Han and Leia and Chewie and the droids that are trying to take out the shield. You have Lando in the Millennium Falcon with the entire fleet, including a new character, Admiral Akbar, who, of course, is very famous for his one line, it's a trap, which is very funny because we talked last time about how many times characters in Empire also say that things are traps. Traps are very important to the Star Wars universe. <laughs> I don't know why. It was just very memeable, I think. <laughs> and then, of course, we get Luke, you know, having his showdown with Vader and the Emperor, even though there's a lot of cutting back and forth between these three things to amp up the tension. And I think it works pretty well for the most part. Let's take these one at a time. So let's start on Endor. So Han is now a general, even though he's been out of action for like a year. And uh, so they, they all they they all decide. I hope he got his vision back. He's like, I don't, you know, I'm leading this down. Whoever wants to come with me. And the gang decides to go with him. I don't know, for good time's sake. Or because Chewie now has a tracker on him after what happened last time. I feel like, I feel like Chewie has some real energy of I'm never letting you out of my sight again in this movie. Like, does it, was anyone else getting that from Chewie? I was just really into Chewie's hair and, like, it just falling in front of his face the whole time. It just felt very, like, I'm tired. <laughs> I mean, I think Chewbacca, as I said to you when we were watching, I think he got a blowout. Yeah, I think he did. Uh, I think he got a bit, a, a bit of a hair treatment between <laughs> films. Or fur treatment, uh, I by, guess. By the way, a little bit, a little bit of extra canon material for you. So General Maydeen with the 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 bedhead, mm-hmm. you know, given the briefing, he is the one who trained the commandos. Oh. So he trained everybody except for Rex. Yeah. <laughs> about how to be a commando. So just by the way, that's that's what he was doing. There's like one scene with him. He doesn't really it doesn't really I mean, he's in some of the other stuff, the ancillary stuff, but it's just fine. Who's this guy? Yeah. Why isn't Mon Mothma, does she not know how to, it, on the many list of things Mon Mothma can't do is give a briefing one of them? What can she do? Yeah, I do love that Mon Mothma starts to give a briefing and then the briefing goes on, but then Han and the gang manage to totally disrupt the meeting. Like, like everybody is just like talking to uh, each wait, other. Wait, the main characters are talking. Yeah, like nobody, like how did they, how did the meeting go after that? <laughs> it doesn't matter. We were, we already know what the, what the main characters are doing. <laughs> I have to be honest of that whole scene. I'm just mostly interested in that guy's hair. Like, it just is so, like, it's just. Well, and like one side actually looks flat. Like part of his head looks flat compared to the rest of what's going on. I have a picture of myself from like COVID when like I had, because I had really short hair beforehand and just it was growing out horribly. And I feel like. I have to find it because I feel like my hair looks like not the same, but also like very <laughs> not good. <laughs> we arrive on Endor. Everyone has their cool camo coats on. I love that Han is wearing his regular I clothes loved, under his camo uh, <laughs> overcoat, I guess. And that his is like a trench coat camo and like Luke and Leia went for the poncho camo. <laughs> 
Yeah, I wonder what the uh, the costuming department, not the costuming department, the uh, outfitting department, I guess, at, for the Rebellion. They're like, okay, we have the overcoat option. We have the poncho option. Everyone has to wear the same helmet. Yeah. We just have the one helmet, but here you go. Sam, actually, we've talked a little bit about how the Rebel series managed to backfill Rex into Endor because they made Rex, uh, the older Rex, look like a person who is part of the team in Endor and so canonically made Rex be in Endor. I don't remember that. I am mid-season three on a rewatch of Rebels that I started like a couple, like a year or so ago that I really need to continue. So I probably haven't seen that yet. But Sam, you noticed him this time looking for him like two or three times. Is that right? Uh, I think we might have seen him three times. Yeah, there's a guy who is part of the strike team. You do not age out of the rebellion. They they are not that well staffed. But uh, there's a there's an older dude who has not a lot on top, and then a nice little snow white beard there. And that is who they make Rex look like in in Rebels when you first see him. He is, you know, he's bald on top and he's got the white beard and that, you know, a lot of people caught on to it immediately. I think I was aware of it before we got to the end, but I was like, I'll wait till we get to the end of Rebels. If Rex is still around, okay. And if I recall correctly, because we didn't get all the way to the end of it when we were watching episodes to prep for this. If I recall correctly, there's a voiceover. I know there's a voiceover at the end. I think it's Sabine, isn't it? Yeah, it's Sabine. And I think she mentions that Rex is still involved in the rebellion. I believe. Yeah. And and so that's that sounds. I mean, and that's the point where basically Filoni is copping to the fact that this is what they did on purpose. Yeah, so So. we get to see possibly a Rex cameo, which I, I do love that they never really like address it. But I think it's cool that he's just like there. I guess people love this scene, but the the speeder scene through the woods, which I didn't know until we watched Empire of Dreams that this was filmed in the in Northern California in the Redwoods, which now that I know that it makes complete yeah. sense. But it is really beautiful, like the the Endor setting. I don't like the pod racing scene in The Phantom Menace. I know people love it. It's kind of boring for me. This is way more exciting than that for me because it's unplanned, like, in the movie. It's not like they were, like, planning to do this. So it just, the fact that it just happens to me, to for me, makes it way more exciting. I find part of it very silly, and I mean that in the, in an affectionate way. You know, Luke, like, lightsabers at the front of one of the speeders they go spinning around they blow up and then the person disappears which is very funny it's just the effects of that time so i just i appreciate it from like an 80s action movie kind of way i love that leia is the one who initiates it though like they're getting away and leia immediately just jumps on the speeder and goes and she's gonna leave them behind but luke like manages to jump on behind her like at the last second but he's like leia like, and it's just, it's very funny to me that it's like, <laughs> she's gone. Like, she knows what she has to do. Like, she's not going to wait for them. Yep. Yep. It's certainly better than pod racing. I like that, you know, it's a it's a practical effect, once again. And you could also read it, helpfully as the fact that Leia is a Jedi. Yeah. Or has, or is at least Force-sensitive, because... 
you take your eye off the ball for one second on that speeder, and well, you see what actually happens. Right. To a couple of the um the oh, I can't remember what they're called. Forest the, uh, troopers. No, they're <laughs> called something specific. Scout troopers. They're called ah. scout troopers. Yeah. So the fact that she's able to stay on for that long, having no experience with them, you know, points to something. But you know, really, the fact is. Those things go through a forest so quickly they should all die in seconds. Right. And yeah. I've always it thought seems that. like a very impractical vehicle for yeah. a forest setting. <laughs> like if you're gonna go that fast. <laughs> There's a lot of trees. We have now arrived at possibly the most controversial part of Return of the Jedi that is very divisive among a lot of fans. I don't think any of us have differing opinions about Ewoks. I think we all like them, but I do wanna ask. How do we feel about the Ewoks watching them this time around? I still love them. And the whole idea of taking the most annoying character that I love so much and the Ewoks thinking that that character is a god is the best thing that ever happened <laughs> to me in my whole life. I love them. And I. it is funny that they're very like... I couldn't tell if they were just going to kill them or eat them, like, at the beginning. Like, are they cannibals? Are they just murderers? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. I love the whole idea where Luke's like, well, I guess I have to do some sort of space magic to get them to trust us by, like, fooling them. Um, I'm glad that they were murder bears and not people because I feel like that would not have played well at all from, like, a let's make this tribe stupid kind of vibe. Like, that just doesn't doesn't work. There's a there's a way that this if they hadn't used costumed bears really is what these are like teddy bears that are life size and murderous. There is a way that this could have played very racist. <laughs> like if if they had made it like an indigenous tribe. I was watching a movie recently where like the lost city, and like you think they're going to go in that direction, but like. It doesn't like they they like subvert that trope and it really that really worked. But I was watching that movie like kind of nervous. I do love when C-3PO is like telling the Ewoks about the story up until now, like what they've all been through. And it kind of reminded me about um, Fellowship of the Ring when Gandalf is talking to all the little hobbits and I just wanted C-3PO to be like and turn them all to stone or something. It was very cute. But the one little baby Ewok, I was like, mm, I know I wanted to like cuddle with him. Is it Wicket who, when they're talking about Han being put in carbonite, like puts his, his head on yeah. Han's, like he reaches out to like hug Han. I think that's very cute. Sam, you have definite opinions about 3PO being a storyteller in this context. Oh, but before we talk about that, we should... A, you since you brought it up, say that that Wicket has adopted Han and Leia mm -hmm. as his parents. That's, He's like, they're, they're, you're my, you're my parents, right? Now. I'm um, your child. Yeah, to to him. <laughs> yes. Han Solo gives off real dad vibes. Yeah. So that's fine. The second thing is we need to talk about the Ewok line, which is from How I Met Your Mother. Ah, uh, yes. As you recall. Yeah. So so Barney has a theory. It is the Ewok line, and you are born on one side or other of the Ewok line. The line represents May 25th, 1973, which is 10 years before Return of the Jedi was released. If you were born 
on the pre May twenty fifth, nineteen seventy three line, on side of the Ewok line, you hate the Ewoks. If you were born on the later side of the line, you love the Ewoks because that means you were ten years old or younger when you first saw the Ewoks, so you thought they were cute. The joke in the episode is that his girlfriend doesn't like the Ewoks. Therefore, she must be several years older than she claimed. The punchline, <laughs> of course, being not everybody saw Return of the Jedi, you know, as soon as they were consciously able to. Right. right? That's a big yeah. assumption. That's the, yeah. that's the joke. But, well, but it's also pretty funny because, as you know, my, my friend who is a member of the 501st, he was born in 76. He does not like the Ewoks. But I, of course, do. So this theory is clearly nothing. So I just. My dad also disproves the theory as born before 1973. Your father is a child in heart. He was was watching it with the eyes of a (laughs) 10-year-old. I think the Losbert principle is certainly at work here. But to answer your actual question about 3PO, it's in A New Hope, right? It's the beginning. He says, I'm not much of a storyteller. Yeah. Right? And, you know, of course, two movies later <laughs> is the storyteller. And we've we've had this discussion about how R2-D2 is, and he is, it's true, because 3PO is kind of not there for the first movie and a half. But you're right. You're right. He really is the constant presence throughout the, the story. But, but 3PO really is the storyteller himself. You know, he is... And I mean, to be fair, in The Rise of Skywalker, probably the one good thing that we regularly recall from that movie is that the, the, you know, the Star Wars saga was the friends we made along the way. Right. And, you know, 3PO is the recipient of the best part of that movie. So, I mean, that, that thread really does go through and, you know, probably no more clearly than Return of the Jedi, where he is the storyteller and a, and a deity. And a deity, and he can make sound effects, which we didn't know I, previous to this. Cool. Like, so I pointed out yesterday. He does a good. Yeah. He does a good Darth Vader. That he got the probability mod. Yeah. Between Star Wars and Empire, he got the sound effects. The mod sound effects mod. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. So what you're telling me, Sam, is that the original title of Star Wars as a series was going to be Journal of the Wills. Are you telling me it's actually the Journal of C-3PO? No, the original title of the Star Wars saga was, even before Journal of the Wills, was Super Friends Adventures. Oh, that was the original, Super Friends Adventures. Yeah. Okay, I see. All right. So yeah, we get Wicket, and I, I definitely want to talk more about Wicket when we get to the Empire of Dreams, because I found out some stuff from Empire of Dreams that I didn't know. Me too. Same, same. I think the Ewoks are really fun. I think they're cute. And there's something really incongruous, I think, about seeing some like creatures that are so cute that then later are revealed to not only be, be brilliant tacticians, but also very willing and capable to beat a stormtrooper to death with rocks. Like, I, to me, and with home alone <laughs> traps. Like, basically, like, they are masters of the battlefield. Yeah. But, like, it's, like, none of them have blasters. Like, they are literally, like, beating these men to death, like, with their sticks and their rocks and such. I think it just really shows because they are 
likely native to Endor, that they know the land and the world so much, and the stormtroopers are such outsiders, and it's just interesting from that perspective, that they're protecting their home, regardless of what <laughs> Han and Leia I mean, are up to. Of course, goes beyond protecting your home. It's You have every right to... I mean, if somebody comes in and colonizes your land, you have every right to do this. Yeah. Although and, it is interesting that they don't yes. until Han and Leia well, give we them a Well, we don't know that. We don't well, know true. that they hadn't set up their home. I mean, come on. I know they're industrious little murder bears, but you have to at least allow for the possibility that they had not set up those home alone traps overnight. Yeah. They, you know, one, if you could, you could think if you I wanted to, that. you could interpret this to say that the reason they were so upset about these people coming at the last minute, it was going to ruin their plans because they were getting ready for their own counteroffensive. And then when they found out, oh, look, all these dudes are going to help. All right. Okay. Do I see. this. If They're you, like, what are these outsiders doing wandering around ruining right, our Because surprise. they could just yeah. be more of the, but they could be more of the same though. Right. Yeah. Like they don't actually know. That's true. That's so true. I don't know. Well, I mean, but they probably did set them up the night before, but. It's I, fun to think otherwise. <laughs> I have to say, though, that two, I've, there are a lot of sad moments in Star Wars. There are a lot of moments in Star Wars that break my heart. But the two saddest moments happen with unnamed characters in both of these films. The Rancor Master, when his Rancor dies and he just dissolves into tears. And, like, this is an unnamed person. You have no idea, like, who this person is. But just his sadness at seeing what I believe is his little baby, <laughs> like Rancor, dead, is just, it's like, oh my God, Luke, you're a monster for killing this Rancor. And then the other one is when one of the Ewoks dies and the other one, like, you know, is like hovering over it, you know, like because he thinks he's still alive and then slowly realizes that he's dead. Like to me, that is like the most devastating Star Wars is those two moments in Return of the Jedi. Just go there for a second, right? Those are the two most meaningful on screen. Well, no, sorry. There's Vader. Come yeah. on, Tessa. You left out Darth Vader. You left out the Emperor. I, that's fine. I but cry more for that Ewok. Okay. The Emperor who I, dies I, and we I never hear say, from again. I will again. grant you that. Number one answer is definitely the Ewok who dies. But I would put Darth Vader above... The Rancor. The, the Rancor. Okay. I, w- I really would. That's fair. Uh, but this is probably <laughs> as good a place to any to point out that they toyed with the idea of Han actually dying at the end of Empire Strikes Back. And this idea actually carried over into Return of the Jedi. But as soon as they knew they were going to put Han on Endor, they thought, hmm... Well, if Han's not going to die, a ship sure as hell is going to. And who's going to be on it at the time, right? I, if I remember this correctly, because they don't talk about it in the documentary, but if I recall correctly, that Lando surviving mm-hmm. was a change that was made after the rough cut of the film. Like it is actually, they, they die. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would make sense because Han has that, like, I have a feeling I'm never going to see her again when right. he's looking at the Millennium Falcon. Which you pointed right. out, Sam, that we never see Han in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon since they arrived at Cloud City. 
He is never in the yep. Falcon in yep. this film. I thought maybe for a second after I said that, I was like, well, he is piloting the Falcon after Tatooine. She is, but we don't see it. Yeah, we don't actually see him in the cockpit, which kind of sort of transfers ownership, I guess, of the Millennium Falcon back to Lando, sort of, at least for this like part of the battle. Are, are you saying that it's squatter's rights, Tessa? No, that's not what I'm saying. I mean, that's what happens in the next movie. I believe that until Lando is piloting the Millennium Falcon that Chewie has been piloting it the whole time. So what ends up happening is that before they go into this battle to destroy the shield tower, the MacGuffin Tower, Luke realizes that him going along with them has put the entire mission in danger because Darth Vader now has this force connection with him that I assume was established at the end of Empire. And he can sense that Luke is there. The Emperor can sense that Luke is there. Uh, And so Luke breaks off from the party to go turn himself over to Darth Vader so he can have this final confrontation with Palpatine and Darth Vader. What did I say during the Rogue One episode about the second location? Yeah, never go to a second location. And it turns out it didn't matter anyway because they were all very aware of the the, uh, attempt by Han and Leia, which just goes to show that even the Empire can catch on when six of their troopers don't come back. This, I think, is the emotional center of the movie, so I kind of want to take it slowly. So first I want to talk about Palpatine. So we saw him very, very briefly in Empire, although he looked very different in the original despecialized version because they were doing something very weird with a mask and a chimp's eyes and all that stuff. But here we get him um, as Ian McDermott for the first time. What do we think about the official introduction of Palpatine? Well, I do know when I was a kid, I thought he was terrifying. I think the facial design in this movie for him is amazing it's so good it looks especially now like you know i was i watched um revenge of the sith and like i don't like how he looks in that movie when he's when uh i guess mace when you know whatever when when he gets a uh, his <laughs> his new face um i think it looks really silly but I think it looks so good here and natural. And I never would have guessed that it was the same actor when I was a kid because I, you know, he really looks, I mean, obviously I knew that they had added things to his face, but like he looks so old. So it it amazed, when I found out watching the prequel trilogy and that it was the same actor, I was like amazed. <laughs> he just, he taunts Luke so well throughout this whole scene he just knows, and you. we saw him do the same thing to Anakin, not as direct because he was trying to manipulate him from, like, a place of right. fake love, I think, when this is just, like, Luke already knows what he's about, so he's not, you know, there's nothing to pretend, so he's taunting him a little bit more aggressively, and you do see Luke struggling with it. I think it's funny that apparently since he became emperor, Palpatine has just like kept the Sith look like he he never takes his hood off. Like he's always wearing those black robes and it's just like he's like, I'm a Sith now. Like he could wear anything. He's the emperor of the galaxy, but he's like, nope, like my black robes. I like this look. It works for me. I'm doing it. Since I was a young person, a young child. 
I was thinking about, um, I've been thinking about severance earlier today. So I was thinking about Adam Scott. This is a joke on their podcast. Since I was a young boy. (laughs) I think one other thing that the sequel trilogy does is I think it confirms my suspicions. And I've wondered, this is like George Lucas in a chair with true serum. Like, I'd really like to know the answer to this. I think that the Empire's out of gas. I don't think the rebels win if they're a functional government. I think the performance of the Emperor in this movie is meant to convey to us that, like, I mean, if something doesn't happen, this is all just going to fall apart. He's got to be pretty old at this point. Right. And so, I mean, we know kind of extra canonically that the Emperor was obsessed with cloning. And as we find out in Rebels, time travel because he is not doing well. Right. And he, I mean, you know, he's paranoid and all of those things, but. The, the problem with a empire that does not have a clear line of succession, at the very least, is that if something happens to the emperor, what's going to happen after that? And this empire was always a cult of personality. It just so happens that that personality was a Sith Lord. By the time we get to Jedi, I think dude's had it. I think he's done he has no Order 66 was a dope idea if you're an evil person. The Death Star, also dope. But as soon as you build Death Star number two, it's clear you're out of ideas. You're running on fumes. You are doing what a lot of pro sports and college sports coaches do. When you know you're about to get fired, you're like, nope, nope, it's, an ass- it's the assistant coach, not me. Let me fire and make a new splashy hire, and that'll totally save my job. It doesn't, by the way. <laughs> and so I've always thought that the emperor in this is purposely depicted as somebody who is just past his prime. And again, as I said, that's borne out in what becomes the sequel trilogy. The only reason the rebels win is they are fighting a weak opponent. The reason the First Order are able to take over so completely, the reason the Rebels are the bad news bears when they actually get put in charge, is they suck. They kind of suck. Which is fine, because Mon Mothma sucks. That checks (laughs) out. Saw died. Yeah. But even if he hadn't died... That guy can't be the leader of no, a government. No, he can't rebuild anything. Princess yeah. Leia, you have to think about it this way. Princess Leia was trained to be high up in government. But, I mean, when you're trained to be in government, and but your entire life has been part of a resistance, what are you going to do when you actually get to be in charge? That's why, I mean, a lot of freedom fighters, a lot of rebellions throughout our history don't work. Because these people aren't the best equipped to be leaders. They're the best equipped to be in charge of rebellions. But again, the Emperor, I think, is just at the end of his rope. And and I think that... I mean, compare him in this movie to the Master Manipulator of Episode 3. Compare him to the Emperor who's like, He hit me. And on that one move got Anakin to join the dark side. Yeah. After his years of grooming, of course. 
I, I agree with you, Sam. And I think further proof that that's true is why would they be looking for Luke as an apprentice if that wasn't true? Like, there's always two. He was looking for a replacement because he's done. And this is this is why empires often fall apart, like you said. Uh, I hadn't thought about this, but I think you're right thinking about it more, is that if you don't have a clear line of succession, the empire often will fall apart. We've seen this time and time again with people like Alexander and Genghis Khan and um, even the Roman Empire to cert- a certain extent. But the the thing about Palpatine is he's too paranoid to have an heir. Vader is not his heir, right? Like he has always kept Vader at arm's length. Like Vader is his apprentice. And that comes in from the Sith, right? The Sith are so paranoid about their apprentices killing them that he can't see a future without him being in charge. And so the problem is, is that that's not feasible because you can't keep control forever. You will eventually die of natural causes, if nothing else. And so, like, I don't know if he sees Luke as a chance of for a do-over. I don't know if he would make the same mistake with Luke if Luke was his apprentice or what. But I, I do agree with you there. I wanted to talk, though, before we get to that scene in the throne room about this very small scene that I that always hits me, like, in the feels, <laughs> where... Luke and Vader meet each other in person down on Endor before Vader takes him up to go see Palpatine. And there's this very interesting conversation between the two of them that I think works emotionally in the original context. But I think thinking about it in terms of chronology, in terms of what we've seen before in the prequels, it works even better. That moment where Vader is able to say, you know, oh, like, so you know that it's true. And they have this conversation. Luke is like, I can sense the conflict in you. And Vader says it's too late for me, which I think is a very, like, sad thing to say that Anakin basically sees himself as like, well, I've done all these horrible things. I can't be forgiven for them. I can't take it back. You know, I can't, you know, the only person who understands is Palpatine, which is something that we've talked on this podcast before. But also the fact that he pulls out Luke's lightsaber and it's green. And he says like, oh, I see you've constructed a new lightsaber, right? Because we haven't talked about this. Luke was using Anakin's lightsaber before. The one that he drops off of Cloud City is Anakin. And whose fault is that? It's Anakin's. But, you know, it is interesting, the fact that he's like looking at this lightsaber and he's, you know, saying, oh, like, you know, you're you know, you're an adult, like you've, you know, grown up and I've missed all of it, you know, kind of. Yeah, this attitude cats in the cradle, has. silver spoon. It's kind of interesting because I know this is for later, but I don't know if either of you read the Ben Solo, Kylo Ren, I guess it was the Kylo Ren comic series. It was like four issues and it's like about what happens when he turns and there is a very similar oh, I can never go home again, feel about it. And I just think that is something that's constant in Star Wars, which makes, and obviously we have, we're going to probably say the words redemption (laughs) at some point. But it's interesting that Star Wars to me is always like, everything I did was so bad, I can't go, I can't go back home. And that begs a really interesting question, I think, about Darth Vader and what happens in this film. So obviously, Darth Vader has done some horrible things, including genociding a planet, killing younglings, right, uh, as Anakin Skywalker, Tusken Raider genocide, which we can argue whether or not that should have happened then. It doesn't matter. In this continuity, that has happened. He's done 
He's done lots of other horrible things, too, that off camera. And a lot of people like to say, like, oh, so we're supposed to just forgive him based on this one moment at the end of this film, right, where he tosses Palpatine over the the railing and he does it for Luke, right? Um, and so we're supposed to, like, oh, well, he's fine. He's a Force ghost now. He, everything is forgiven, right? And, uh, Sam, I know you have something very specific to say about this in terms of li- the literature surrounding Leia's relationship with Anakin and Vader, But I also think that what you just brought up, this idea of does Vader feel trapped as Vader? Like, do you think that one of the reasons that he continues to serve the Emperor and continues to do these horrible things, I'm not trying to say that he doesn't have full responsibility for them. He does. But is there this sense that he doesn't feel like he can, you know, say that he's sorry or or try to make it up to people or do the right thing because he just he just feels that it's too late. He's just done too many bad things and like he like like you said he can't go home again. He can't regain that high ground. I didn't even mean that as a pun, yeah, but there it, it is. Yeah. First of all, <laughs> victims of abuse and survivors of trauma can themselves be bad people. Or people who do bad things. So, first of all, right? That to preface. And then to say the thing, I mean, he's being actively gaslit. Right. The entire time. That's what this is. The fact of the matter is, Darth Maul was down to clown. Right? Count Dooku was legit turned. Like... He thought this was bullshit. That is not Anakin Skywalker. Anakin Skywalker was groomed and gaslit. And so this doesn't work if Palpatine doesn't make him think, beginning in Revenge of the Sith, that, you know, there is no going back, which of course there is. Padme still married him after he admitted to killing a... Stupid. Anyway... Even even that notwithstanding. Of course you can go back. You might have to face consequences. You're going to have a whole shitload of atoning yep. to do, but I mean, of course you can. Right? Right, and I, I think... You don't think Obi-Wan wouldn't... Uh, right, well, and I well, wonder I if that. that's what the Emperor told him. Like, I wonder if he's saying that because he's like, oh, remember all those shitty things that you've done? Like, nobody's going to accept you except for me, right? No one will ever love you. No one will ever love you except for me. But then I'm also reminded that Yoda keeps telling Luke, if you go down the dark side, you can't come back. You can't come back. And I wonder if... Yeah, I wonder if Vader thinks that he legit can't. that Because he's been told by everyone that once you go dark side, you can't do anything else, right? And that feels very damaging to me to tell that to someone, right? Like, oh, you're just you're just bad now. Right. It makes it seem like one mistake. I mean, obviously, there are way more than one mistakes. Not mistake, but like things that he did. But it, it almost makes it seem like you make one mistake, you're fucked. Like, and that's not how life right. well, is. And I wonder be. if a lot of the bad things he d- had done, like, Alderaan, for an example, would have been prevented if someone had just said, you know, you don't have to do this, right? Like, you can actually, like, just not do it. You know what I mean? Like, I just, 
I feel like there's a really interesting conversation to have here. But Sam, you've mentioned that Leia has did, a very specific opinion about Darth Vader. Did Vader blow up Alderaan? Well, he was. The, he stood uh, by. No, and he was there. He's culpable. Oh, no, for yeah. sure he is. But I would but, say that Tarkin. But it was Tarkin. Does, right. Tarkin I understand that. Well, right? because but. that's what happens in the true Supercura is he he force ghosts to Leia, and she's like, "You fucking blew up my planet, you monster." I don't right. care if you are my dad. Get the fuck out. He could have stopped Tarkin with his powers and probably oh, yeah. his strength I'm, in general. So he's definitely uh, it, liable. It, maybe <laughs> I wouldn't say it's semantics, but it's just this side of semantics. Because he could have stopped it. But it's incredibly difficult to take action when you're put in that place of manipulation. Like, I'm already bad, so I guess I'm just bad right. now. Yeah. And, and yeah. well, here's the thing about that. Like, this is why I would actually like Force Ghost Therapy. Right. As I've talked about, because I think if there's anybody who could actually hear him say, I did terrible things and this happened to me, it's probably Leia. I don't know. Yeah. I I don't think Star Wars is a place for nuance at all. I think that's part of the 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 place we found ourselves in with this franchise. But you know, if Andor is promising us perhaps the beginning of sustained nuance, I think this is another spot. That's why I have very strong feelings about it. Because yeah. what do you say to a father? It's almost more interesting what Leia would have to say than what Luke would have to say because there's so much freight on both of their ends. Well, Luke is like, Daddy. Like, like right. Luke is like, Luke, Luke really wants because, to believe well, Vader is still good. And right? I edited that episode. Yeah. And I still disagree with you. Lars is not a dad. I know, I Just know. Just forget it. He had no dad. No, I... And so that's part of it. I mean, yeah. he wouldn't have that strong of a... You killed my real dad. Yeah. No, he didn't. So he doesn't feel that way. Well, yeah, and I after watching Star Wars again, I'm more inclined to agree with you, actually, based on what Lars actually tells him. Kind of him. a jerk. Or Owen, sorry, not Lars. Um, yeah. Well, he is Lars. Owen Lars. Owen Lars, yeah. There you <laughs> go. Sorry, I'm like thinking of something completely different. No, I know. Yeah, but no, I, I agree with you. I think it's very interesting just to have these conversations about Darth Vader and like, you know, where we are exactly with him. The scene in the throne room has... I, I know I said that Duel of the Fates at the end of Phantom Menace is one of my favorite live action lightsaber battles. This is the other one, I think. Um, I mean, there's definitely like a top three or four in there, and I'm sure there's a couple in the pre, uh, in the sequel trilogy too. But the lightsaber battle between Darth Vader and Luke here, where it's just the darkness and it's the two of them, and you have the red and the green lightsaber, and you know you have these moments where you can see both light and dark on both of their faces. It's just so beautifully shot. Is this what makes it a Christmas movie? The red and green lightsabers? <laughs> the red and green lightsabers. <laughs> yeah. I only had a joke to say. <laughs> I mean, I guess when you think about it that way, it's very anticlimactic. Because you already know what the end is going to be. I mean, even if you've seen it before, right? It's just so beautiful, though. Oh, no. It is, like, and that's why it's a good scene. But as far as the drama of the thing, it, right. it—I mean, it's already the air's been let out of that balloon, right. as you mentioned earlier with that scene on Endor. Yeah. So I it's, it's really, fair. it's really—I mean, the the 
the tension of the scene is not I love that they call them laser swords. Dude, you guys invented the term lightsaber, but they don't even use it when they're making the <laughs> film. But the laser swords are irrelevant. Mm-hmm. It is all about the emperor heckling. Right. And then eventually Good. directly interceding and then making with the force lightning, which is new. Yeah, the remember. force lightning. I remember the first time I saw it and being like, what? Like when I was a kid. So yeah, but just remember. Yeah. The Yoda... Dooku lightsaber fight mm-hmm. is useless. Yeah. This is a better useless lightsaber fight. Yeah. but Right? Because there are no stakes to it. Right. But it's representing the conflict in the characters externally. Like sure. like you said, it's not really about who wins the lightsaber fight. It's about the conflict within. I like at the end, Vader's like, no, no. Man, oh, it no. does take Vader a minute, though. Like, him looking back and forth between Luke no, and the, the Emperor. No, at the end of the lightsaber fight. Yeah. When Vader is like, no, don't cut all oh, my arm. Oh, you beat me, son. Yeah. You let him win, you jerk. <laughs> I did. I did laugh a little bit. I feel like Darth Vader looks back and forth like six times or something, like deciding what to do. I never noticed how many times before, but it was just like repeated. And I was like almost counted because it was so bananas. Best part, hands down. Which I love it. Him looking back and forth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I mean, you can't see his face. You can't. Yeah, you have no idea. There's no. Well, I mean, looking back, that's all you can do. That is the only acting choice available. Right. And I, I like it. I dig it. But you can see it. It's like you can't see the actor's face, but you can see the emotion somehow, like in the... So I completely agree with you. And to go back to Spider-Man from earlier, how they like criminally put this mask on Willem Dafoe when Willem Dafoe has like the most expressive face of all time and should just like, they should have just made him green or something. Darth Vader is totally fine showing his emotions through his through his mask. It 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 works. It just works for me. And it doesn't it depends on the situation. So like in in Spider-Man it does not work for me. And by the way, I'll I'll point out really quickly cuz we didn't it didn't occur to be yesterday, but it did just now that a lot of times when you have the person who gets out of the abusive situation. There is a cycle of trying to convince yourself everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine. And one thing that happens often in these situations is there's the final commit. There's a better name for it, but I don't know what it is. It's the final commit. It's like, okay, because you you know it's wrong. You are about done. Whatever influence is, is no longer working. Right. And but you're going to try one last time because there's that constant narrative of it'll be okay if or this is my fault. I shouldn't have or if I could just do, you know, everything will be fine. And it's not. But so oftentimes when that influence has ended or is or is weakening, you do it. You do it. But people do it one more time. One more time. They really try to commit using that same self-talk that's empire that's cloud city yeah i could see that he'll love me if he'll love me if i do the thing at cloud city right and so by the time you get to return of the jedi dude's done yeah 
He's done. He, he just needs 100%. that little push. Yeah. I so two things, and then I want to move on. But like the first one is, and I was thinking about this is that when people say like, "Oh, we're just supposed to think that he's fine now for all these things," I don't actually think that's how the movie's playing it. Because when Luke says like, "I'm going to save you," to him mm-hmm. at the end, he said, "You already did." I don't think what he's saying is, oh, like everything's fine. Like I did my one act of goodness and it's fine. I think what he means is you saved me from thinking about myself this way and from this relationship that I had and from being that person, right? You you saved me from, not that everything's fine. <laughs> I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, is you did save me. Yeah. You stopped the cycle. I think that's actually really, what he's also. There's a there's a very large narrative to be had should anybody over there at Disney want to do it. But it's not purgatory because that's a different tradition. And, you know, I'm going to talk about a tradition I'm fundamentally less cognizant of, but I'm cognizant enough to say there is something to be done with force ghosting as atonement. Yeah. And like good I, placing it. Well, right. I mean, Qui-Gon, I'm not really... It'd be interesting to find out what he, if that if that theory plays, and I think it would. It would be interesting to think to find out what Qui-Gon thinks he has to atone for. Because I don't know that we know. And that would be some really interesting character work that could be done there. But Obi-Wan, I think, realizes you know his time in the desert. And I think we even get it from the miniseries. He knows he has to atone. He knows he needs it. It would be really interesting for somebody to just force. Go- I don't. I guess you can't slap a force ghost, yeah. but to be like to convince Yoda, he actually does need to atone, <laughs> yeah. and then to see Anakin's atonement. It would be a really interesting storyline. I think. Yeah. I don't want to see Ben's, but whatever. Yeah. The last thing I'll say before we move on to the next segment is um, I didn't notice this until it wasn't this time. I noticed it the last time I watched Return of the Jedi, but I had never noticed it before. Um, But I think the other really emotionally affecting part of this sequence is honestly Luke losing his shit and going dark side temporarily right within this fight with with Vader cutting off Vader's hand. But the thing that snaps him out of it is looking at his own hand and then looking at the wires coming out of Vader's hand. And it is like this moment of recognition, right? Like it's, we talked in empire about how Luke recognizes Vader as his shadow self, right? As somebody that he could become. And that's what makes him so horrified at the fact that Vader is his father. I think this is him realizing that it could work the other way, right? That Vader is like, he is, if Vader is his shadow self, then he is, Vader's light self, I guess, like, and that, you know, like there is this sense. Yeah, there is this sense that they are doubling each other. And that's kind of what makes him be like, because the next line is, you know, I'll never join you. And he throws the lightsaber away. He says, I'm a Jedi like my father before me. And I think that that is supposed to be the moment that he's like, no, this is what, you know, I actually think should be, which I think is, I I don't know why I never noticed that before, but I think that's interesting. All right. Segment four. Meanwhile, somewhere that isn't Tatooine, we watched Empire of Dreams, which is, of course, a documentary that was released. When was it released? It's, 2004. It's, it's a bit of an older documentary, and yeah. I selected it. So I yeah, I put together the ancillary material list, yes. for better or for worse, <laughs> and it's been a real challenge to keep up with in places. Uh, <laughs> we didn't actually get to watch the episode three documentary. Uh, that was sad. 
Um, and as I mentioned, we didn't quite get as far on the Rebels as I wanted to. But I put the Empire of Dreams here because it does encapsulate all three films, although it only spends a little time on Return of the Jedi, whereas some of the other documentaries are more heavily on, as this one turns out to be, on what happens in 1997 through Empire. We'll say... As a preface, this is a Homer documentary. This is made by the people who have a vested interest in telling the story a certain way. This is not an objective documentary by any way, shape, or form. And, I don't know, we saw some other documentaries and call BS on a couple of things in this one, but that's okay. What did you think about this documentary, Elise? I very much felt that it was... um slanted as uh sam says quite unsubtly um i felt that i tried to read between i i did enjoy it and i liked a lot of the behind the scenes stuff that you wouldn't have seen otherwise if it wasn't made by the people that want us to think all the good things but so i was trying to read between the lines a little bit and the scenes in general where they show lucas directing star wars is such a foreshadow of everything that happened with him directing the prequel trilogy. Like, it it could have been foretold. As the Emperor says. The way he <laughs> micro... Yeah. The way that he micromanages everything that happens on set, there was that little bit where one of the lighting guys was saying that George was, like, taking the lights and putting them in certain places, and the lighting guy's like, that's my job. You tell me what you want to see, and I will do it the best way I know how. So he was definitely stepping on people's toes and needing to control the situation, and I'm not even saying that as, like, a value judgment. I can be a bit of someone that likes to control things as well, so I I understand how that works that being said you cannot be an expert on every little bit Mm -hmm. of making a movie like there's that's impossible to know how to do every part so some things fall through the cracks when that happens and that is kind of seeing that really was like oh of course this is what would happen with the prequel trilogy like it just seems so obvious now the thing that stood out to me most about this documentary because we've watched a few star wars documentaries for this project and This is the first one where we actually got to hear a bit from the actors as well, um, from Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher, which, as you said, some of the stuff Carrie Fisher says about being told to lose weight is frankly heartbreaking. Yeah, I had known that because I had read that Princess Diarist book that she had written. Yeah, and it's just anyway. um, But we also get to see Harrison Ford, who doesn't who famously doesn't like to talk about Star Wars, but he does actually talk about it in this film a bit. And it is interesting to hear, and Anthony Daniels and Kenny Baker, um, you know, all talk about him too. It is interesting to hear about how they were like, he's a genius and he has this great vision and it's it's wonderful, but he's actually really not great at directing actors because he wants you to do it the way that he has in his head, but he's yeah. not great at communicating what that is. And Harrison Ford says it's not even an actor's process like actors don't like they they find ways of doing things with the character that don't necessarily match up with what you have in your head and Anthony Daniels who I've seen in all three documentaries we've watched about these this trilogy has said that his the only direction that he got mostly was faster and 
more intense. Like, do it again, but faster and more intense. And he says, like, which is not a helpful thing to say to an actor. So it is interesting to, like, hear kind of these, like, even in a film that's so slanted towards Lucas, you can still hear these, like, little, like, yeah. That's why I was, like, it's probably way worse. Not, like, that it was a horrible working environment, but, like, it just seems like it was a lot worse than they're saying. Harrison, the way he phrased it was basically that Lucas didn't have the patience for you to work out how to do it. Like, he wanted everything done immediately. And that's just, I can only imagine, I mean, I'm not an actor, but that just sounds like it would not be conducive to getting me to do anything. Ah, the Ballad of John Dykstra. Yeah. Right. And I talked about that. Was it yesterday? Mm hmm. I you know talked about how it's absurd to think when you have engineers creating things from scratch. If you've ever met an engineer, it's just absurd to think you're going to see close to a finished product five minutes before you see the finish, finished product. It's just absurd. I looked up his name. The map painter. Oh, good. Right? Uh, Harrison Ellenshaw okay. is one of the three map painters, including Ralph McQuarrie. Mm-hmm. Harrison Ellenshaw is the matte painter who got his start as a matte painter at Disney because his father was a matte painter. His father won Oscars for his matte paintings right. in Disney. Um, and I think it's so fascinating because uh, Ellenshaw is not in Empire of Dreams. I distinctly noticed yeah. the absence there. And I just, it's its very interesting because there's a selective story. Those map paintings are so integral, but they have been tossed away by George Lucas. He does not care about those map paintings. So you don't actually hear a lot about the matte designs in Empire of Dreams yeah. because it has been made after the special editions where some of the major changes, probably the biggest major changes outside of scene editions is subbing out matte paintings for CGI. And that's one of my big complaints, as you know, about the special editions. When you have artists and engineers, and really, when you talk about steam, but for real, Mm -hmm. that's what these people are. This is actual steam, right? Uh, Not that bullshit they basically say where they start a STEM school and be like, well, we teach an art class too, right? This is real steam. And Lucas doesn't want anything to do with it. He wants what he sees in his head rather than the work of all of these people. And so, as I said, uh, Ellen Shaw is really the the standout example for me other than John Dykstra of the, the dark side of George Lucas, honestly. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the light side being the uh, enabling all of these people to do all this groundbreaking stuff. And then the dark side is like, but that's not what I want, so I'll get rid of it. Yeah, it it is interesting too. Yeah, it's, it's also interesting too watching this film and like having watched other documentaries that are perhaps not as slanted in in their betrayals of Lucas is that John Dykstra just disappears in this. It they never talk about the fact that Lucas actually fired him between um Star Wars right. and yeah. Empire. Like you see him talking at the beginning, but the documentary just like and we had this, uh, we kept most of the team on and they don't talk about how like Dykstra was basically let go, even though he did all of that work on Star Wars because he didn't do it the way Lucas wanted him to do it. 
Um, and then also the bi- the other missing person from this is Marsha Lucas. Oh, sure. Who well, only gets yeah. mentioned twice. <laughs> but here's the thing is that even if Marsha Lucas didn't want to sit down and talk for this documentary, which mm-hmm. I would completely understand, I've seen her talk in another documentary, and yeah. which is very rare for her. But even if she didn't want to do that, the way Lucas erases her from this film, she gets mentioned twice. She gets mentioned when Lucas says that he didn't like the editor, the English editor that he had hired for Star Wars. And so he fired him. And the the voiceover, I guess, says like, and so he turned to Marsha Lucas and borrowed her. But then it, that's all it says. And then it goes to talk on about Paul Hirsch and Chu. That's the name of the, the person who helped him. And what they did to edit the film. It doesn't talk about the fact that she single-handedly re-edited the last half of that film into something amazing. And the only other time that they mention her is when he said he was getting a divorce. And the way he frames that is so interesting. And this is just tea on Lucas, I think, because he just says, I was getting a divorce and I was left (laughs) to raise my child. That is not what happened. He was not a single father of that child. Like the way he frames it is like Marsha Lucas like ran off and like, Mm -hmm. you know, never heard from her again. Like she divorced him because he's a workaholic. And like she was like, you're never home, basically. Um, And so like you can see a little bit of animosity in the way that this documentary completely erases the fact that she, along with Paul Hirsch, won that Oscar for editing that film and that that film would not exist in the way that it does without her. By the way, we've talked a lot about the man, the myth, the legend, George Lucas. Yes. And we've also talked about Jungian shadow selves. Yes. So I want to be fair. I want to be very fair to George Lucas here. If you spend time, and so we're talking about this documentary, we are talking about the Industrial Light and Magic documentary that can also be found on Disney+, and we are talking about the recent Vice Unearthed documentary series on Star Wars. I think you can also add in the prequel trilogy documentaries, Mm -hmm. obviously not the sequel ones, but one of the big ideas about Shadow Self is to recognize that if you admire somebody for a positive trait, like you um, you admire their punctuality, say, you're probably going to be annoyed as any rational human being would then at, you know, when you, if you're with them before they're being punctual, when they're like, we have to go, we have to go, we have to go, you know, just being obsessive about leaving at that time. Those things are twinned together. Mm-hmm. In a very self-shadow self way. Um, that's another way to think about the shadow self. So to be ultimately very fair to George Lucas. George Lucas did something that absolutely zero people have done. Or he did something that two people had done, but bestie Francis Ford Coppola failed at where George Lucas succeeded, which is exiting the studio system. Right. And cannily just one of the most amazing smart things is getting that contract about sequel rights and merchandising yeah to then manage to self-finance which as they say in empire of dreams no sane person would do to have the wisdom to hire somebody like john dykstra who you know we'll get back to 
I, I just keep mentioning his name. I know who John, John Tykstra is because of his daughter, Chloe. I just right. want to point that out. I know who she is and by association know who he is. But to set up that, that place in Van Nuys to allow all these things to happen, to inspire, to, to do all of that stuff is unbelievable. Nobody else was going to do that. Nobody. So you don't have John Dykstra getting screwed over. You don't have these beautiful matte paintings being taken out of the films at his whim. You don't have... And by the way, I believe the Library of Congress prefers their Star Wars with the matte paintings, I think. I believe. You know, when they were selected for the registry. But you don't have all of these horrific things that we're talking about horrific in terms of filmmaking of course without the other side without the right side and and it's really important to and these documentaries they all do a great job of it even the ones that are critical of him are more critical than empire dreams which is to say all of them it's a balance and it's it's such a hard story to really make sense of because this is the story of of genius and I mean, on the scale of things, it really feels like George Lucas is one of the least horrible bad oh, people yeah, geniuses, no, like, right? I mean, so, so it's many just complex feelings towards George. It's just so <laughs> yeah, interesting. probably it, it is. I think yeah. really quickly, uh, the thing that stood out to me that I mentioned earlier is Warwick Davis was a child in this, <laughs> which I did not know. Like I knew Warwick Davis was Wicket, but I didn't realize he was like nine years old <laughs> when he was in this um and he was 11 sorry he's adorable first of all and like the fact that an 11 year old could put that much personality into something that you can't see his face is just like that's incredible and i loved hearing him talk about it so after star wars came out and he did empire there was like a very I didn't realize this, but it's a very big deal not to have the opening credits before the movie. And during Empire, or I guess they let it go during Star Wars and during Empire, they find him a whole lot of money. And so he got really offended and left like all yeah. of the unions <laughs> that are associated with filmmaking. So that when he was making Return of the Jedi, he really had a hard time finding a director because he probably couldn't pick a union director. So he says that he would have wanted Steven Spielberg, and I keep thinking about that, and I'm just like, oh, well, would we get a movie with aliens? And then I'm like, oh, wait, never mind. This whole movie is with aliens. It would have been a, it would have been a different film, for sure. Yeah. And lastly, after watching the movie Christmas in Connecticut with both of you, I was so sad to hear that when they were trying to design Jabba the Hutt, they were like, Something like Sydney Green Street. So like Uncle Felix as Jabba the Hutt. Yeah. We haven't talked about the fact that Jabba is associated with a lot of fat phobic discourse um, culturally. So yeah, that's a whole thing. Not great. All right. Uh, I'm going to turn segment five over to Sam and Elise because I know they know more about this. But Max Rebo's retcon corner. We get to see Max Rebo in this film. What do you got? That That was the... I, I like that we finally got into the punchline of that joke. Yeah. One thing to come back to on the the Empire Dreams documentary, they show the scene where uh, Han is hanging upside down on uh, the skiff, and he says, it's all right, I can see a lot better. 
I was yeah. like, that's kind of a fun line, but I don't remember it. Well, that's because the original line is, it's all right, trust me. By the way, just a, a retcon change for the special editions, by the well, way. Well, the, the date, you see a lot of those kind of, kind of dailies, like alternate yeah. takes in Empire of Dreams, which is pretty cool. Right. So the big changes in this, and, and I know I'm not the only one opinions, with opinions on this one, but this is where the segment comes from. The Max Rebo band perform with Psy Snoodles in uh, Return of the Jedi in Jabba's Palace. And the song they perform is Lopty Neck. And it's a, you know, it's a nice little jizz number. Jizz number. Yeah. Oh, my God. And what's happening during that time is a Twi'lek. Of course, this is where the narrative really, I think, starts in earnest with the Twi'leks, is that they are basically pleasure slaves, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, Ula is the Twi'lek here, and she is fed to the, to the Rancor, right? In the, in the new version... In, in the replaced version in Return of the Jedi, Lopty Neck is taken away. It becomes a new song, Jedi Rocks, that involves a fourth wall break that drives Lazi crazy. Ula has backup dancers. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's a little bit more going on here. But basically, it's like there's no real reason to change this, but they did it anyway. It just becomes a cartoon. And I, like the way that her lips move is terrible. Moving on real fast, and we can you know, analyze these in a minute. This is one I didn't really remember, but I think it's really funny realizing this. So the Ewoks, when they do their little doop doo doo Yeah. That's Aaron Copeland's fanfare for the common man. Oh. It ain't in the special editions. That's interesting. I know. <laughs> and so cutting to the end, Yup Nub is, to say the least, a very polarizing song. I understand that. If you don't like the murder bears, you don't want the movie to end with the murder bears. But the the classical version of Return of the Jedi finishes with the murder bears celebrating, the people from all three of the intercut battles celebrating together. You know, this is a true alliance. And it really focuses on that alliance thing here. And we also get the moments with the the dead Jedi who are nominally part of it, right? Mm-hmm. But that's the thing, right? It's a celebration of an alliance that was successful. But there is a thematic thread here. What it's replaced with is whatever song it's replaced with. And it's replaced with an intercut with celebrations from Coruscant, which there's about to be a hell of a riot in Coruscant, by the way. Right. And so there's a reason for this. Nobody knows what the fuck Coruscant is. Coruscant doesn't exist in 1983. It's nothing. It exists by the time the special editions come out in some of the expanded novels. But it doesn't exist, except it's about to in two years. Right. In The Phantom Menace. So George Lucas himself does a backfill for The Phantom Menace. So this is effectively a retcon. Uh, because it takes out something that we are supposed we're supposed to celebrate the insularness of the Rebel Alliance, you know, the people who were part of it and celebrate it. Instead, George Lucas opens the world out for something he's going to do later. I I don't. To me, it's like that's fine. Actually, on the face of it, well, Coruscant, that's fine. But this is not that. So I pretty much had it with that man by the time those two scenes happened. I just <laughs> like Yub Nub. 
I just like I don't I don't really actually care about the intercutness of everything. The, I just the Ewok like, playing I the xylophone really enjoy that song. on the Stormtroopers yeah, helmets. I, Come they, on, they have war trophies that they use as musical instruments. Like what? What? What are your thoughts on the retcons, Elise? I also want to add, I think they also add Naboo in that scene at the end in the special edition as well, which is obviously um, something that's been about 25 years since I saw it. So who knows? I believe they show Naboo also or like. Maybe that was even a later edition because I feel like he changed it. Oh, that's it right. Remind me to come times. back to Hayden Christensen. You are absolutely correct, though. Yes, it got changed that time, too. Um, another change was they put some like little shop of horrors fucker in the Sarlacc pit. No. And no. I don't like that at all. It was like this mouth thing that came out of the pit. And I th- think that's stupid. I in general, have not cared that much about the special edition changes. I really do hate the one in Star Wars where they add Jabba the Hutt to that that scene early on. Um, So these ones don't bother me as so much, and I do not have the same strong feelings about the new song at the end like Sam does, but watching this time... Because it was the older version of the film, Yubnub was so perfect that I just like, okay, I will concede that Yubnub rules. I would not have been upset if we got another song. An after credit scene of them just dancing to a different song. I mean, they partied all night. You know there was multiple songs. Like, yeah, I gotcha. You are correct. They did add Naboo. At the same time, they did the other thing. So there are three actors who played Darth Vader in the original trilogy. There's David Prowse in the suit. There's James Earl Jones making the voice. And there is Sebastian Shaw, who we see at the end of Return of the Jedi, primarily as a force ghost. Now, around the time of the Naboo replacement at the end of Return of the Jedi, they removed Sebastian Shaw's eyebrows because, you know, Anakin got burnt up in a fire. Right. <laughs> can you can you make just it thinking make way too hard about this and then eventually they were like well hell if we're gonna try and make it look like the guy who was burned up on mustafar let's just sub in hayden christensen which granted makes sense but i still don't think you should do it wouldn't it be funny if they yeah, had like both Obi-Wan's yeah what are you gonna do you don't Anakin's replace alec and... guinness with ewan yeah. mcgregor and i know what you're thinking well he died as guinness yeah. <laughs> just sitting on his shoulders. Yeah, I like it. All right, that brings us to the lighter side of the force. What are some things that made us laugh about this film? This isn't really like in the film, but there's a... I don't know if anyone else is familiar with the movie. I do not Kevin remember Smith if we actually Clerks. talked about this on the podcast. No, we did, because you did Clerks for I a Monkey. I did Clerks a while we back, We have previously yeah. discussed this, which is why I'm deferring to. I'm deferring to you. I just love when I think it's um, Randall, right? I always get, I haven't watched the movie in a really long time. He is talking to Dante about whether it was ethical for them. I don't know if this was like the exact conversation, but whether it was ethical to blow up the second Death Star, being that there would have been laborers still building it, or it is ethical because if you even work in construction for the Empire, you're bad. And I was like, I just love that. I don't have an answer to what I believe on this. Um, 
But I just think it's such a funny conversation. And then I told this to Laz and he was like, well, they're probably prison labor. It was probably prison labor. And I'm like, can you let me just have my train you problem know, and like go away? Returning to the, the family, quote unquote, that you're a part of, in Clerks, that conversation ends with a third party coming up and saying, you know. Oh, yes. Talking about uh, the the person being offered the work on a roof of a uh, mafia member's house, and it's like you you know like when you mo- take the job yeah. on you get what you get. So nice cover for saying you don't know. Yes. What? No idea. <laughs> They're in waste management. I can say that joke waste now. Man- hey. Because I've been job. watching the Sopranos. <laughs> I laughed so hard at everything involving Chewie and the Ewoks taking over the walker. Like everything about it made me laugh from like them almost like wrecking it immediately because Chewie wasn't in there yet. And the Ewoks were too overzealous in their attempts to pilot the thing to the part where one of them pets Chewie's fur, (laughs) like just starts petting him, which is great. The other one that I want to say is that there's a really great, there was a really great tweet. And again, I can't credit it. I'm sorry. There's so many tweets that I remember that I can't remember who they were by, but someone tweeted that it's really sad that saw Guerrera never got to meet the Ewoks because he would have been like, finally a force willing to do what's necessary. (laughs) And all I could think of was saw Guerrera leading an army of Ewoks (laughs) and like how, I just picturing him like on like a hill on Endor and all the yeah. Ewoks like short <laughs> behind him, like ready like, to go. Perfect. Perfect. Han also oh God, does Sam's that. favorite thing in this film. He doesn't throw a gun, but he does throw a part at that he's like working on. He throws a part at an Imperial stormtrooper and knocks him out of the building. <laughs> All right. We have to do our third segment because you are a member of the pod wraiths. Who are we thirsting for, Elise, in Return of the Jedi? Leia. Specifically when she has the braids wrapped around her head when she's wearing her camo poncho. I love it. Like when right when she takes her helmet off. And Wicket's like, and oh, you're pretty. Wicket, I'll, I'll stick with you. She looks so pretty there. Sam, I'm assuming Leia as well, since the only other option for you it would be Mon Mothma. lady. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I have to also say, though, that Billy D. Williams, like Lando, looks pretty good in this film. Despite my my problems with his character arc in this film, he's looking pretty good at the in the cockpit of the of the Falcon. I wonder how his cape closet is doing. Before he takes it into the Death Star into the battle, he like repopulates the cape closet. He like brings his capes on board. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on twice, Elise. This is a lot of Star Wars for you to have talked about with us, but I am very glad you were able to come talk about this film because I think you and Sam probably like it more than I do, so it's it's good to hear that. Next time, Sam has lens flares written down. I assume you are talking about The Force Awakens, which we are going to discuss with Lazie again tomorrow, our second second-timer. Yes. All right, yeah. The Force <laughs> directed Awakens. Directed by lens flares. Direct, directed by lens flares. Sentient lens flares, which is how we describe J.J. Abrams. Elise, where can people find you online and in their headphones? First, I want to say thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. 
You can find me on Twitter, Letterbox, and Storygraph at chicken underscore underscore two underscores tendi t e n d i. You can find me and my co-host Matt on our Deep Space Nine podcast, The Pod Wraiths, at Pod Wraiths on Twitter and Instagram. Sam, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine. You can find me on Letterboxd and Storygraph at Melody Valentine. Very quickly, by the way, because I don't have a plot podcast to plug. If you are unfamiliar with Storygraph, Goodreads is owned by Amazon. Storygraph is created and owned by black women. We're on Storygraph. Uh, Monkey is about to launch a 2023 book reading challenge that is primarily housed on Storygraph. We're very excited about it. So definitely, if you're not on Storygraph, sign up for it. No, no promo. We do not get anything from Storygraph for saying that. You can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at The Buy Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, which I host with my friend Nigel. We are reading through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. You can also find more on filmmaking and movies from me and Sam on Movie John. That's moviejawn.com. Please send us your thoughts about the monkeys we've talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffbybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. May the force be with you and get that monkey off your back.